transitioning from being a know-it-all to being a learn-it-all. Or I like to think of it as like, we're so used to trying to outsmart our problems, but really the people who are succeeding in this kind of soup of uncertainty and unpredictability and change that we're all swimming around in, they're not trying to outsmart their problems, they're trying to outlearn them. And so what you see are things like, okay, maybe I'm pretty good at giving feedback and I give you feedback in a way that allows you to tweak how you're doing something. That's good. But then that spillover into great is I give you feedback and that allows you to think even more broadly about how can you apply that to 10 other areas, 10 other domains. Welcome to 7 to 8, our special series on 7 to 8 figure entrepreneurs. In this special series, I interview million dollars, some $10 million, and even some million dollar business owners who uncover their twists and turns in their entrepreneurial adventure in order to help you to avoid the potholes and stick to the fast track. Welcome now to Center Stage, our next special guest. Hey there, peeps. This is Michelle Nedlek, and I'm super glad that you're here with us today because I'm here with my most amazing guest, Tanya. Tanya, thanks so much for being here with us today. Are you kidding? I mean, you all missed the first part of our conversation where we talked about ravens and pigs and roosters and all sorts of stuff. I mean, I feel sorry for anyone who missed that part. <laughs> right? We're going we're gonna to have to try to make this part pretty useful. <laughs> exactly. We'll do a barnyard special. <laughs> That's good. That one. Until then, give everybody uh, the highlight of who you are and a quick introduction to your business. Yeah, sure. So, oh goodness, existential question. Uh, I am an author, psychology researcher, entrepreneur. The I, I um, am a co-founder of a company called Life Labs Learning, where we do leadership training for about 2,000 companies now all over the world, um, really focused on what we call tipping point skills. So what's the smallest number of skills you need the tips over to allow you to handle any situation that comes your way? And uh, my most recent book is called The Leader Lab, Core Skills to Become a Great Manager Faster. I love that. So how did you get into leadership as a thing? Oh, very accidentally. I was studying organizational psychology and communication, emotion regulation, group creativity, like not leadership, and uh, started working with organizations doing more like consulting around organizational psychology and just started hearing over and over and over that where people felt the most confusion and frustration was specifically around managers. Um it was these companies that were growing really quickly, relying very much on this kind of nebulous role of manager to help scale the culture and the effectiveness of the organization and create high engagement and all this kind of stuff. And yet the managers were struggling. They were burnt out. They were confused about what they were supposed to do and how to do it and all this kind of stuff. And so my co-founder at Life Ops Learning, Leanne Renninger, her PhD is in uh, experimental psychology. So she really led the way in going, let's experiment on these people. <laughs> or at the very least, let's start by observing and seeing not what do people think makes a great manager, but if we watch them in their meetings, in their one-on-one -on -one conversations, review their written communication, what are the specific behaviors? We call them behavioral units that distinguish the best managers from average. So really tumbled into it following the kind of the question of where is there the most need and where is there the most confusion? <laughs> nice. So that does beg the question, though. Do people think that the skill set that makes a good manager are actually what they respond to to make mm. a good manager a good manager? I love that question. So what we found is that when we ask people what makes a good manager, two things kind of stood out that were funny. Uh, one is that there was no correlation between what people thought they were doing and what other people thought they were doing. So for example, yes, being a really good listener is a predictor of being a good manager, but people 
had very little capacity to assess their own listening skill. So if you ask people, you know, what what are some of the things that allow you to be really effective? They'll be like listening skills. And then you ask their team on a scale of one to 10, how effective is this person at listening? Not very effective. Zero. So, <laughs> zero. <laughs> that was kind of insight number I know one. it's important and I'm not going to do it. Uh, that's how that goes down. <laughs> or it's like, you think you're doing it and no one's telling you that you're not. So you're continuing to go ahead thinking that you're doing it. This is one of the reasons the leadership skills are so hard to develop is like, if without a feedback loop, I don't know. I mean, I don't drive, so I shouldn't use this metaphor, but from what I understand, <laughs> learning to drive requires feedback. I need to know if I'm crashing into something. As a manager or, or a leader in any capacity, if I'm not being told that I'm crashing into something and driving over places I shouldn't be driving over, how am I going to get better? So one of the problems is there's not enough feedback. And so people don't have that self-awareness. That was kind of insight takeaway number one. Insight takeaway As number a good two. driver, I think you should know that you're running over something before you run it over. Mm, that's what makes you a uniquely effective driver. Probably. Yeah. Driving by Braille is not a good way to drive. No, probably not. Bumper cars. Bumper cars is a great way to drive. Yes. Uh, I'm not good at bumper cars either. I got to say it's just terrible. I really shouldn't be on on any road anywhere. Um, but to answer your other, your question more directly, like, is there a correlation between what people thinks it takes and what it takes? When you ask people, what does it take? They usually go really broad. So they'll say things like you have to inspire people or you have to motivate people or you have to hold people accountable. Maybe, but they're very broad kind of, you know, high level concepts. What really makes a difference is the very specific behaviors. So for example, very few people talked about the importance of asking questions for being an effective manager. But when we studied what these people that were uniquely effective were doing differently, they were asking way more questions and better quality questions than average. That rarely, rarely came up in our research. But yes, asking good questions leads to inspiration and engagement and effectiveness and that kind of stuff. But people didn't know how to name that, which is really um, sad <laughs> and scary because, again, using the driving analogy, it's like if someone put you into a car and to teach you to drive, they were like, drive smoothly and safely. And you're like, okay, <laughs> I hope I drive smoothly and safely. But in order to actually be effective, you need those specific skills. I love that. I find that as useful as be careful. Yes. Wow. Thank you. I so never would have thought of that on my own. Right. <laughs> but, but that's the, the thing. These managers are being promoted into the role and they're like, be careful, be inspiring, be effective. And they're like, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and I find it funny too, in my experience, People who think they're the best listeners or would rate themselves kind of the eights and nines out of tens are have a wonderful habit of articulating. They want to be active listening. So they're repeating what somebody's saying while they're saying it. And like, that means that you're not listening. Mm. <laughs> I appreciate that. Sounds Pam. like you're saying that it sounds like that means that you're not listening. Yeah. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think that people who tend to think of themselves as very good listeners are, <laughs> this is a blanket statement and not research backed. This is just my personal opinion, <laughs> tend to be so focused on how good they are at listening that that diminishes their ability to actually be present and read between the lines of what the other person is saying. Well, and to me, that's an easy thing to see. And I would guess, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's probably that way with a lot of skills. 
because our ability to assess kind of where we're at, oftentimes in my experience, there's this nuance of I'm not good at that, therefore I value that, or I, I value it, so I'm going to value it higher, even though I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I want to be there, but I'm not there, so I'm going to value it higher. One of the things that is a chronic frustration in leadership development in any area in education is that the people who tend to be most motivated to learn something tend to be the ones that are already better at it than average. So you'll see the people that are sitting in the literal or metaphorical front row, you know, with their hand up in the air asking all these questions. And you're like, oh, I really wish that that other person who thinks they're really good, but they're actually quite bad. I wish that they were the ones that were really engaged. Um, I used to find that really upsetting at first because I'm like, oh, I want to reach the people who are really, really struggling and don't know it. Turns out that if you help people who are already excited and motivated to be better and already quite good, that still has a wonderful tip over kind of ripple effect because then you take them from like a seven to a nine and then they're able to spread that to others. And that's why I get excited about the leadership role is it impacts so many people. It impacts people in the workplace. Uh, it impacts people in their personal lives too. If you've got a really shitty manager, can I say shitty manager on your show? <laughs> you just did. <laughs> manager. Then that was a bleep of my own making. That stress carries over into your personal life and all of your relationships. It limits not just your professional productivity, but your personal joy. Um, so I, I do get really excited about, you know, leaders as a group to support. Nice. I love it. I had a coach once that said, follow successful people around uh, and help them become more successful and Mm. you will become more successful, which Mm. I thought was rather redundant at the time. And I was like, well, like they're going to do it anyway. And he's like, Mm. yeah, they're going to do it anyway. They may as well give you credit for it for starters. (laughs) Second of all, they're going to take it places that other people Mm -hmm. can't, you know, you may take people from mediocre to good, but when you take great people to fantastic, mm-hmm. everybody knows. And that yeah. that becomes the the shiny beacon that you want to have. Uh, yeah. So I totally appreciate that. And and when it comes to leaders in the workplace, um, there's also, I find the ones that are like, oh, I'm already good. I'm fantastic. Like an ego thing of, mm-hmm. I, I don't need any more help. And the ones that are like, okay, I get that we're doing this well, but how do we take it up a notch and how do we make it that much better? Are both might be at an eight or a nine, but the one that kind of stretches beyond there is one they're a lot more fun to work with. And, yeah. um, and they really ha- tend to have a lot of breakthroughs. Have you noticed that? And if so, what kind of breakthroughs are you noticing? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think about as kind of on a, on a meta level, I don't know, depending on how you want to visualize, see their overarching or kind of foundational skill is learning, or we call super learning, learning how to learn. There's, um, this term that the psychologist Carol Dweck uses of transitioning from being a know-it-all to being a learn-it-all. Or I like to think of it as like, we're so used to trying to outsmart our problems, but really the people who are succeeding in this kind of soup of uncertainty and unpredictability and change that we're all swimming around in, they're not trying to outsmart their problems, they're trying to outlearn them. And so what you see are things like okay, maybe I'm pretty good at giving feedback and I give you feedback in a way that allows you to tweak how you're doing something. That's good. But then that spillover into great is I give you feedback and that allows you to think even more broadly about how can you apply that to 10 other areas, 10 other domains. And maybe it gives you this extra level of 
confidence and skill to not just use that feedback in one specific area. Like maybe I give you feedback on your show. Great. There's there's one domain. But if I'm doing it incredibly well, then you're going to apply that same feedback. And maybe it applies to your relationships. Maybe it applies to your written communication, to client work, things like that. So it's like the result when you look at the difference between good and great is just magnified. It's, it's uh, I guess, to your point, really a breakthrough of taking something from one little domain and transferring it across an infinite number of areas. Nice. I love it. So how does, how do you help somebody articulate better questions? Like mm -hmm. how do they know what a better question is? Because obviously if they knew what it was, they would be doing it. And yeah. like, is there a framework to, to know whether or not I have a crappy question or. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I'll, I'll share what we found in our research. One is we try to get people to just start thinking about question quantity at first. Yes. You can ask lots and lots of crappy questions, but as it is, most people don't even ask enough questions. So for example, one area of research that we did was looking at in a 15 minute interval between a manager and a direct report, how many questions do people ask? How many questions do the managers ask? Do you wanna take a guess on average? Uh, let's say in the US, 15 minute interval, how many questions does a typical manager ask? I'm gonna say three. Three, very close. So we found two on average. <laughs> See, it was uh, between one and three. Yeah. <laughs> going, it wasn't yeah. that high. <laughs> Got it. So, so about two, which is, you know, it, it's, it's many, many missed opportunities to deepen someone's thinking, to nudge people to be that catalyst for creativity, for independent problem solving, all that kind of stuff. And then we looked at the managers who were rated again and again as most effective in their organizations. What's your guess? 15 minute interval. And go with at least six. Ten, actually. Wow. And they nice. could be little ones. Like they, yep. it could be a clarifying question. Like, How? is that what you meant? Sure. Or did I get that right? Or whatever. <laughs> wow. With a question mark. Wow. <laughs> No, how? Sorry, oh, how? how? Yeah. Just yeah. one word questions to sneak in there. <laughs> it could be, I mean, it could be even little things like, could you tell me more about that? Or um, how'd you make that happen? Or like, and, and then what? You know, that kind of stuff. So it's really the manager taking the role of essentially like facilitating insight within the other individual versus the manager dumping information into the sort of like passive brain of the individual. And just with question quantity alone, you see this really big difference. Um, we at Life Labs Learning and in the book, The Leader Lab, we talk about this kind of behavioral unit micro skill that we call Q-stepping, which is stepping into a question as your default. So as soon as someone comes to you and they have a complaint, a challenge, a problem, asking at least one question first, maybe even more, but just the default of ask one question instead of dive in there, roll up your sleeves and be the hero and solve the, the problem. That is really difficult to just make that shift. And it makes a really big difference. So that's quantity. Well, and before you leave that one, I want to say condition conditioning wise, I can mm. see that a lot of people would have a lot of issues with that question because they're often told as children, mm -hmm. not to back talk, not to, you know, the whole idea of asking a question to a question to a parent, uh, yeah. especially especially in a um, dysfunctional family, mm -hmm. <laughs> won't put yeah. it that way, answering a question with a question is often very much shunned upon. I ask you a question, yeah. give me the answer. You know what? That is such an interesting connection there. And in all my years of, of teaching this or thinking about this, I've never heard that. And I completely can relate to that. I, I'm from Ukraine originally, but I started school in the US and- I was just so confused about like they don't talk back. I was like, I don't get it. Isn't 
talking supposed to be? And I don't know if this is a Ukrainian versus American thing. I just never went to school before. So this was my first time being in an institution, you know, where people had this like, we have to get through the rules and the agenda and the clock and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I bet you're right, because there is this sort of like aversion that people have at first. Not everyone, but quite a few people go, wait, what do you mean? They're coming to me with a question and I'm going to give them a question back. So one little kind of linguistics tool that I like to recommend if you're one of those people, if you had that experience, which I'm very sorry about, is <laughs> uh, is a tool called framing, which is essentially putting a frame around your question to explain to people why you're asking it. So for example, I have some thoughts about that, but I'd love to just ask a couple of questions to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. Is that okay? So a frame, or I might even say something like, uh, I'd love to just jump into some questions to help you figure that out. Um, or you're going to be closer to the solution than I am since you're the one working on it. Would it be okay if I just throw out some questions so that, you know, you could get to a solution that's better than anything I probably could come up with. So just explaining why you're asking the question can take a lot of that, you know, enculturated association and, and trauma uh, <laughs> with, you know, answering a question with a question. Well, and, and it brings on a, an interesting dynamic because what you're talking about is leadership, which typically a leader will feel this level of superiority to a subordinate. Mm. So it's not as bad. But when somebody's in, say, a sales appointment or they're meeting with their executives, now yeah. now the client and or the the executive will have that feel that level of superiority like and mm -hmm. it can be very subtle and very nuanced and, and it could be totally in the mind of the individual and not yeah. have any reference to the other person at all but when that psychology comes into play now all of a sudden there's a level of intimidation of yeah. oh i have to answer the question so it, it's one of the ones while you were bringing that up i'm going ooh, i could say something like hey that i have six answers for you i just want to make sure i'm giving you the one you're looking for that's great. And then go into another question for them. So you're still kind of giving them that level of, I'm not disrespecting you and I'm not, yeah. you know, taking anything away from you. I just want to make sure I'm not wasting your time giving totally. you answers. And, and I, I mean, I love that you're bringing up the, the topic of power and culture, right? Like, and, and personal association and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of what we also talk about is just making those implicit expectations explicit as a leader, if you do have the ability to do that, or even on a sales call, maybe it's saying like, hey, I'm the kind of person that loves to ask, you know, clarifying questions when I get a question, because I don't want to waste your time with the wrong answer. Uh, there's another little mini tool that we teach, which is the micro yes. So the micro yes is just, would that be okay? Or is that okay with you? How, you know, how does that sound? So it's almost like a little knock on the door trying to get permission for your question, which reduces people's defensiveness, especially if there's some sort of like power tension or culture clash in how you interpret those things. So making the implicit explicit uh, or trying that that little micro yes tool. I think from a leadership perspective too, a lot of it, you know, going back to this idea of power, I think these days we're seeing more and more people starting to understand, oh, right, if I am a good leader, if I'm a good manager, it actually means I'm making other people more powerful. I think kind of old school for a while idea of leadership is I am good if I am almighty and <laughs> you look up to me and my office is better than everyone else's. But really question skills, so subtle, but ultimately it's about not growing your own power. It's about growing other people's power. I'm not asking you questions because I'm testing you. I'm asking you questions because sure, I could solve it and then I could become a better problem solver or you could solve it. And then you become more effective. You become more independent. So sometimes people feel uncomfortable 
answering a question with a question because they're like, oh, but this person has a problem and I'm supposed to help them. Well, like they're not an infant. They're a grown adult who votes and probably has children and dogs or pigs or whatever. And, you know, ideally you are dedicating your focus on what are the things that are going to catalyze and grow this individual's power versus what's going to make me feel like I'm helping them or I'm relieving their their stress or their problem. Nice. I love that. And I used to get a question from managers going, well, what do you think? And I hated that question because I'm like, dude, if I had an answer, I would have brought it already. <laughs> you should know yeah. that about me. Um, yeah. But when you say, you know, clearly you've thought about this, what kind of solutions have you come up with? And if I go nothing, mm -hmm. well, then, okay, <laughs> where do we start? Yeah. And I'm um, not saying like become Socrates and never answer another question. Like if you, <laughs> like sometimes I give people the example, especially when I was teaching in person now so much is virtual. You know, if, if I say like, Hey, I'm new to your office, where's the bathroom. I don't want you saying, where do you think the bathroom is? Like, that's not going to be a great coaching and development moment. But if the question is used as a tool to, kind of in, inspire insight and to help people make sense of their own thinking. Great. If you're like, what's the company policy? And I'm like, what, what, what are your thoughts on the company, policy? <laughs> what do you think the company policy should be? Right. Then it doesn't really make sense. So you need that context there. But again, ideally, none of these tools are like a secret. You can be like, I'm, I'd love to ask you this question for this reason. What do you think? You know, and you can be like, actually, I, I don't think a question would be helpful right now because I have considered everything and I'm really coming to you for advice. Like, could we just brainstorm some solutions. Um, so ideally, you're able to kind of get to a place where you're able to explicitly state what it is that you need and why you're using the communication tools you're using. Nice. I love it. So when you're working with teams, do you usually work with kind of C-suite as a thing or do you kind of break them down into kind of peer groups or how do you? Yeah. Um, well, ev so everyone that said, where we have had, I was surprised to find um, about maybe th three years in or so that so when we started off, we thought C-suite, let's focus on C-suite. And then that'll have like this trickle down effect on everyone. Turns out actually, no, where we have the, the where we see the most org wide impact is if we focus on the manager level. In many cases, we have found that if you try to drag in C-suite folks, they're either too busy or they're not fully bought in yet, or they're the ones that think that they don't need the help and they really do need the help. Um, or they're just not, um, surprisingly, they're not having as much impact. Whereas managers, because they're interacting with essentially everyone, they have this you know, cross-functional impact, they have impact on their direct reports, and then they put this positive pressure upwards if you're in a hierarchical situation uh, where, you know, if they're starting to learn about how to set priorities well, then they're going to be going to their managers, if their managers are in the C-suite, and going, hey, what are our company priorities? Because I want to make sure that I'm helping my team understand what's most important. So could you help me out what is actually most important? And then the C-suite folks are like, oh, what is most important? And so very often they'll end up being the later group to be trained. Um, we do tend to teach in cohorts. So we'll have folks who are ideally cross-functional, ideally with a relatively similar level of skill or experience, although that's not necessary. Like there are pros and cons. It's nice to have someone who's super experienced be able to tell stories, um, but cross-functional is great. And then uh, manager level, we tend to keep together. And then C-suite folks, we tend to keep together because that's also where we can talk not just about skills, but about systems. So Maybe your feedback skills are good, but your systems are crap. Like, you know, you're you're giving feedback 
effectively when you do it, but there's nothing in the environment that nudges you to do it or, you know, helps you deliver that feedback well or, or whatever it is. So we also tend to get into that systems level conversation with them. Love it. And do you mostly work in kind of a single company at a time as a private closed group, or do you have open groups? How do you do that? Yeah. Um, so I would say probably 98% of the time we're working with just one company. Uh, we do have something called Skills Academy where we have workshops that are open to the public. We also, if anyone's listening and you're part of a nonprofit with fewer than 100 employees, we have a program called Catalyst. If you go to lifelabslearning.com forward slash Catalyst, where we have free workshops that are open to um, nonprofits. So people from different nonprofits joining together. Um we will be exploring more models where we bring companies together. Uh, one of the nice things of doing it privately for a company is you're not just investing in individuals, you're also investing in a shift in the culture. So if you've got everyone using the same tools, speaking the same language, all of a sudden you see this kind of swell of, oh, okay, now we've all learned how to I don't know, have an effective meeting. Now we're all staring at each other when we're in that meeting going, I know that we should be clarifying the purpose of this meeting. Like we just talked about that last week. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> if you have one person that went through that workshop, then they're kind of the lone hero that where all the pressure is on them to say, hey, should we pause to consider what the purpose of this meeting is and what what we want the outcome to be? Um, so you see Please. much more organization. <laughs> Please. Please. Please have a purposes meeting. Yeah. If you waste so one there's more, more hour of my time that I don't have. Yes. <laughs> the purpose of this meeting is to take an, an hour of your time. Success. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you see more organization wide change and culture change when you focus on within an organization. But of course, it's also lovely if you ever check out Skills Academy. Um, you get to eavesdrop on, you know, not eavesdrop, but learn from what's going on in other companies and what's got like the, you build your your network from other across other organizations and get to learn what's working well or, you know, feel good about what you figured out and maybe even share that with others. Nice. I love that. So what would you say is your favorite part of your business? Hmm. Um, I'm going to take a sip from my, from my life labs bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say shameless promotion because we've already gone through this conversation beforehand, yes. <laughs> which my, yes. you as a listener did not get to eavesdrop. Well, on. actually, <laughs> so I will <laughs> yeah. say like somewhere on this bottle. So, so this says thirsty for knowledge, mm -hmm. almost dropped it. Oh my God. Life learning. Um, the silliness of the team. Um, mm -hmm. like it is a, it's a, it's a weird group of people. You would really like them. Uh, <laughs> it's people my who teams. are really, yes. Um, <laughs> brilliant thoughtful like uh, read and think and you know and and create constantly um most of them more educated than i am uh and and in a way that you i think most people don't associate with brilliance are just like silly and playful and like we have this these secret surpriseologists within the team and no one knows who they are but they find out when someone needs a positive surprise of some kind and then they orchestrate it um we actually even for oh, I, I think we still have like a surpriseology budget uh for people to That's be able awesome. to send each other surprises um you know when it's someone's first day of work there's like this long email thread with the most ridiculous animated gifs you know where everyone's just like celebrating that they just joined there'll be dance parties <laughs> there'll be like Get, oh my god that's fun just weird funny sweet you know interactions and i think one of our core values is find a way to play um 
another one of our core values is <laughs> open the circle, which is very much about inclusion and being thoughtful about equity, but also the physical you know, kind of metaphor of open the circle, like notice if there's someone standing outside of your circle of conversation, either literal, literal or metaphorical and like open it up, you know, invite people in. So it's just an incredibly welcoming, um, kind, thoughtful and, and weird, uh, group of people. I feel very lucky to know. That is awesome. I am totally adapting that we are yeah, you know, before Monday, we are going to have a new onboarding email. <laughs> that is awesome. No, I love that. I love that. I love that. So uh, give us an example of a Cinderella story of one of your clients. Oh, okay. Um, let's see, where do I start? A Cinderella story of one of our clients. Um, maybe I'll start with, uh, there's a company that we were, well, is it okay if I don't name names? Of course. Oh, yeah. Okay. 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 All right. So there's a company that we've been working with that since I was just talking about open the circle, um, that was particularly feeling like they weren't set up well to have both conversations about inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion, as well as systems in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons I love this story is that you know, generally, as I said, we we like to take people from good to great, but this was an example where it went from like fear and discomfort and, you know, uh, a group of people wanting to have these conversations, all of them or most people wanting to have the conversations and this kind of protective hesitation standing in the way. Um, and so for us, it was a really exciting opportunity because we were able to first just start by creating conversational capacity. Um, and this was a company then that was able to measure both engagement, um, you know, perception of engagement, as well as just uh, their observations of conversations. And suddenly people, once they had the confidence to talk about it, were having these really incredibly useful conversations. Like, uh, how, are, are we being as inclusive as, as we can be in our hiring practices? Um, are our role descriptions creating barriers to entry? Like, do we really need 12 years of experience for this particular role? Um, you know, are we excluding a bunch of people by having happy hours at certain times that, you know, maybe parents can't join or people who live on other noon. other time zones or happy hour noon, all that kind of stuff. You just saw this like complete shift in this fear association to an excitement association. Uh, so not only did that actually impact their engagement scores, not just specifically in diversity, equity, and inclusion, but overall engagement. Um, but it also shifted the diversity of their candidates. So I can't remember the, the I was just looking at the numbers recently and don't quote me on the specifics, but they had, um, when it comes to race and gender, something like a 30 to 40% increase, um, pretty quickly in number of applicants. Uh, and it wasn't even like they were shifting something in terms of who they were recruiting. It's because their practices became more inclusive the way that they, you know, spoke became more inclusive and they weren't freaked out by it. They were excited about this idea of leveraging their differences, which is the beauty of diversity is if you don't treat it as like this scary thing that you're supposed to do, but like, yeah, it's like really exciting <laughs> aspect of, yeah, of being alive and getting to work with people and stuff like that. So that's a recent one that came to mind just because I was looking at the, at their, um, at the, the metrics that they had sent over. But a lot of the themes of the Cinderella stories have to do with kind of shifting from fear and discomfort to having the tools to be able to, you know, even just start the conversation and then, of course, be effective. We actually have people draw 
in our manager program, a before and after picture of themselves. So they'll doodle like, here's where I was before manager training. Here's where I am now. Oh and it's God, so often the case that the first doodle, and we, I mean, I have thousands of these now, like we've, we've trained over 400,000 people. And the first doodle will be like these like splotchy little messy squiggles. And then, and oftentimes they'll have like big, big uh, kind of like talking bubbles coming out of their mouths. And then afterwards you see like neater, cleaner lines and you see like big ears <laughs> and you'll see things like question marks. Um, and very often people will draw like a little tool case full of tools. So what that tells me <laughs> in my psychological analysis is, you know, it's, it's a, it's an easing of overwhelm and people feel clearer, more focused, more confident, more competent. And then that translates to them actually being more competent. Nice. I love that. Well, and I love the word protection he hesitation because mm. I can absolutely see that as a wall, like a six inch concrete wall or bigger. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds so, so nice. It's like, I'm protecting you and I'm just hesitating. And yet mm -hmm. it's the everything that stops people from being able to have a conversation and communicating. Yeah. And I can only, but see that when somebody would be in a safe place to be able to practice this with their group and their peers, how that would translate into their family life, into mm -hmm. everything. Yes. Um, yeah. Because, and it, it can wow. make you like a more, I don't know, engaged with the world human. It's a, it's a scary time in many ways to be a human. If you're freaked out by other humans, because right? <laughs> we are a little freaky, <laughs> we're freaky. We're a kind of a scary species. Uh, and so to be able to have that deep down kind of, I don't know, a sense of both com confidence and compassion, mm -hmm. just, I don't know, it can shift how you talk to your neighbors. It can shift, you know, what animals you end up adopting. In my case, <laughs> we were talking before I have pigs that I live with. Um, so and, and not it, children. Not no, not children, children, actually. They're actual pigs. <laughs> no, no, actual pigs. Yes, porcelain. Um, we call them porcelains of interest. So uh, yeah, I, you're right. And that, that's one of the things that Biological I find. Biological puns. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah I don't mean fun. to hog the whole conversation with talking about my pigs. Um, so yeah. Uh, completely like the, 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 the spillover again to other areas of life. Uh, so much of that has to do with just not having the tools, not having the words and you get the words and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, it's like that key that unlocks this, that six inch <laughs> concrete door. I don't Absolutely. know, can doors be made out of concrete? They can be. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. So I, I know that our listeners are going to want more from you. Where, how do they start their journey with you? Oh goodness. Okay. Uh, you're asking me all these existential questions where I'm like, how do people okay. start the start journey? Start with a website. <laughs> yes. I'll Let's start with that. <laughs> uh, so if you're listening and you're like, I want more, I want more tools or I want live training or, or additional leadership resources. So our website is lifelabslearning.com because we think of the workplace as a practice lab for learning life's most useful skills. So lifelabslearning.com. Our latest book is called The Leader Lab, Core Skills to Become a Great Manager Faster. And that's available where books are sold. Um, I have a podcast called Talk Psych to Me. If you're interested in getting deeper into just the psychology of humans and human connection. Uh, and my website is tanyaluna.com, T-A-N-I-A, Luna, L-U-N-A.com, uh, if you're interested in you know, following future books, future articles, things like that. I love it. I will absolutely be delving in there uh, if I haven't already. Mm -hmm. So nice. I get to ask you at this point, uh, at what point in life did you know that you were a special kind of crazy enough to think that you could become an entrepreneur? Oh, hmm. 
<laughs> I don't think there was a time where I didn't think that I was going to be an entrepreneur. So that's hard to answer because that was my default. Um, so my father had, still has, uh, but even for when I was a young age, even back when we were living in the Soviet Union, kind of illegally had his own business, had a, this like tiny furniture shop. Um, <laughs> Legal furniture shop. <laughs> yeah, illegal. Awesome. You're not supposed to have your own your own business. Um and then when we moved to the US, uh, when he was able to scrape up enough money, like basically the focus was always start his own business. Now, I don't I don't have a relationship my, with my father. It's not like I was like super close to him or anything. So I don't know if it's genetic or if it's just right from the beginning. I was like, well, this is cool. This is fun. I get to come up with my own ideas. I get to my favorite thing about being alive, probably one of my favorite is having an idea and being able to bring that idea into existence. It's like the most delicious aspect of consciousness, I think. Um, and right from when I was little, I mean, I used to like, I don't know, in, in, in elementary school, the boys started this Power Rangers club and they excluded the girls. And so I started the Power Girls club and I went to the store and like printed everyone's certificates for membership. And I like handed out notebooks where we could like take notes about our, our, you know, our plans or whatever. I mean, it's ridiculous, but that is the kind of brain that I've had since I was little where I was like, there's a problem. I have an idea for a solution and I want to see it through. So I don't I think it. I was ever really bound for employment. Um, <laughs> I'm also dyslexic. I think that has a lot to do with it because I do not have the capacity to do things like read instructions. Uh, so dyslexia, is, a lot of it has to do with reading, but also yeah. things like driving, <laughs> telling apart left from right, being able to like follow um, very clearly articulated directions. Uh, and one of the things I've read about people with dyslexia is that sometimes it, it forces you to just kind of figure things out on your own. And I've just figured things out on my own since I was very little. Um, so yeah, uh, and unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for you other than like, I think this is how I hatched. <laughs> I am totally going to put that on a job application and just see what happens. You know, as a favorable skills, non-essential favorable skills, dyslexia. <laughs> I mean, sure. Who, who, you, you never know. I mean, right. There's always a positive to everything. And more and more, I think of things like difference as difference versus ailment. Of course, it can be a problem depending on the environment that you're in, but shift the environment and suddenly it can become an asset. So. Plus there are podcasts now, which is <laughs> exactly. wonderful for my brain because then I don't have to read. <laughs> there you go. I love it. Oh my God. You have been absolutely awesome. Thank you. Any Thank last you. words for Thank you? Oh gosh. I guess I'll just repeat what I said about making your workplace a practice lab. I think so often we miss opportunities to deliberately learn and grow and connect because we're focused on frustrations. And if instead you were like, you know what? my workplace, my home place, whatever, it's my lab. And it's going to be an opportunity for me to just experiment and explore and learn. And in so many ways that can transform some of our most frustrating experiences into some of our most meaningful ones. So I invite you into your own practice lab. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I know how valuable it is. Thank you. Peeps, this is Michelle Nedlock. Thank you for being here with us today, be sure to subscribe to the show and share with your friends. We love helping entrepreneurs grow. Thank you for listening to 7 to 8. If you're interested in upping your speaking game, be sure to connect with our guests 
with the links in the show notes and connect with me to see how we can help you get your tech done for you and help your speaking dreams come true.